you know, the lyrics of that song, The Great I Am, really pound home, I think, uh, ought to at least, the, the greatness of God and how wonderful He is. And our message this weekend relates to whether we believe that or not. And so bear that in mind as we come to the 10th command in our series on the Ten Commandments. And uh, our passage is Exodus 20, verse 17. And uh, before we read that, I want to just tell you a quick story. My, my wife Jennifer and I, some time ago, we were, um, we were not staying at this exclusive five-star hotel. We just happened to be around it and thought we would just go sort of hang around a little bit. I don't know if you've ever done that or not, but... Uh, we just were uh, sort of in the vicinity and thought, why, you know, why not just sort of see what the place is like? And so we were just sort of seeing what the place was like and uh, standing in front of it, you know, where the, 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 the cars came up and dropped people off. And we're standing there and uh, this Cadillac Escalade, black, shiny SUV pulls up and it's pulling up towards us. And for whatever reason, I looked through the windshield and I saw just a shape of a head in there. But there was enough in that shape that I thought I knew who it was, actually. And I leaned over to Jennifer and I said, it's Warren Buffett. And sure enough, the door opens, out steps Warren Buffett, uh, along with a little entourage. And he walks right past me. Right past me up into the hotel, like he owned the place. Maybe he did. I don't know. Uh, now, some of you are going, who's Warren Buffett? <laughs> Warren Buffett is normally like number two or three richest man in the world. I looked it up. $60 billion is all he's worth in financial terms. And uh, so Warren Buffett walked right past me. Now, being the resourceful pastor that I am, you'll be happy to know that I very slyly slipped a Bethel Church tithing envelope into his pocket (laughs) as he went by. And so we'll find out if anything comes from that. And if you know me well, I'm joking about that. Uh, But uh, anyway, Warren Buffett, the richest of the rich. It's hard to get my mind around you know, $60 million, much less $60 billion, and how many zeros there are. You know, there's like, what is there? There's a, a thousand millions in a billion, if I have that right. And he has 60,000 millions. <laughs> Just boggles the mind. But that's what he's got. So, you know, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around $60 billion, much less wish that I had everything that he, that he has. But how about a, uh, a friend or a sibling who has something that maybe we wish that we had? A neighbor, a coworker. What do we feel often inside when somebody like a sibling? has a big win in their life, a big success in their life, a windfall of some kind, purchases the house, the car, the, you know, the season tickets to the bulls or whatever it is and that, that maybe we wish that we had, but now my brother, who came from the same womb as me, 
has and I don't have it. I'm good with it or not. Do we know that feeling so often inside that we can get when somebody close to us that we would say that we love has something that in our hearts we dearly desire? It's a combination of resentment, rivalry, irritation, all wrapped up into one emotion. We can put a lot of words on it. But God puts a word on it, and that word is the subject of the 10th command. And you're going to hear that word as I I read now. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, it says this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Did you spot the word? The God word for this uh, inward emotional irritation, uh, resentment that we feel. What's the word? It is the word covet. That's right. Or the longer word, covetousness. Maybe you're familiar with that word. Neither of these really are words that we you know, use that often in our vernacular today, but they are very common Bible words and they make their appearance here in the 10th command. Now in the English, if we do use it, typically it has a negative connotation to it. To covet something, we, we, we would see that as being, as being generally bad, but the, the, actually the Hebrew word itself is neutral. In fact, you could translate it just simply desire. Okay. Desire. And desires themselves are not bad, necessarily. God has made us as human beings. We, ha- we are filled with desires, and many of those are good and legitimate and ones that God placed within our hearts and that we can seek to satisfy and to feel good about and to derive pleasure from them. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, wife, or donkey, which is a struggle for many of us, I know. I wish I had his donkey. To want a donkey isn't wrong. To want your neighbor's donkey and to plot to get it, now that is wrong and unethical. And what this command is getting to. And so again, desire important in this, I think is to realize to have a proper theology of desire and to realize that desires are, are good and they can be holy when they are directed in the right, uh, in the right orientation. But when not, then they cause problems. So you think about prior to the fall, for example, God gave Adam and Eve strong desires. They had strong desires for worship. They had strong desires for food and drink and beauty and relationship, fellowship with God, fellowship with one another, communication, and so forth. All of these good, holy, and we have all those same desires. And those are even to this day, good desires. The problem is, is that after the fall and when sin enters into the picture now, these desires are easily corrupted. And they are directed uh, and oriented towards illegitimate satisfaction of those desires. Or as Paul writes in Romans 1, now rather than desiring the creator, we desire what? Created things. 
and we think that these things will make us happy. They will satisfy us. And so we desire them greatly. In fact, we can desire them apart from God and out of relationship and worship with God. Augustine said that. And the quote doesn't come to my mind right now. Give me a second. It's still not coming to my mind right now. So maybe it'll come back later in the message. We'll see. Uh, Actually, it's not there. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm coveting that quote right now in my mind. So after the fall, our desires now are often towards those things apart from God or viewing those things as a kind of God to us. Now, we saw that in the first command. These are known as idols, right? An idol is when I desire anything more than God or think some other thing is going to satisfy the longings of my heart. And we take even good things and we make them ultimate things. And we think that that's what life is all about. And so we orient our life towards the satisfying of that particular desire apart from the enjoyment of that for God's sake. And therein lies our issue. And so Adam and Eve shattered our hearts and our desires, and all of our hearts are shattered with them. And with that shattering now comes this human struggle whereby we not only think something other than God will make us happy, we desire and obsess and long to have what somebody else has. And we think, if only I had that, I would be happy. It's the one thing I need in my life. And maybe even with that, we resent the fact that they have it. And this is where coveting and envy and jealousy, they all kind of revolve together. An insatiable craving for what I don't have. And desiring to take it from others who do have it. Or simply to burn with resentment that they have it i don't know if you had the opportunity and if you didn't maybe it'd be best if you if you don't but uh if you watch the suicide tape of the santa barbara mass murderer this past week you see what coveting looks like at its pathological extreme and how it drives hate and violence and anger and a breaking of all the other commands as well So, coveting, you shall not covet this sin, this sin that robs us of joy, this sin that carves out this sense of my humanity lived in worship before God, now live for created things rather than the Creator. God loving us enough to say, don't do that. Don't live for those things. Don't feed those affections and desires within your heart. That's coveting. So what is coveting? Let's sit on this a little bit. Let's make sure we understand what we're not supposed to do. Here's a few definitions of coveting. Covetousness is desiring something so much you lose your contentment in God. A consuming desire to possess in a wrong way something belonging to another. It's not simply wanting something we don't have. It's wanting something that someone else has. 
And here again is where these ancient confessions and catechisms I think are helpful. Westminster, larger catechism, question 147. What are the duties required in the 10th command? The answer, the duties required in the 10th commandment are such a full contentment with our own condition and such a charitable frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor as that all our inward motions and affections touching him tend unto and further all that good which is his. Now that's old English language for saying, love your neighbor as yourself and don't try to get his stuff, right? Next question, 148, what are the sins forbidden in the 10th commandment? The sins forbidden in the 10th commandment are discontentment with our own estate, envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor, together with all the inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. And what's especially good about that uh, catechism question is that it shows us what the real issue is. When I am When I am filled with covetous desire for what somebody else has, I am fundamentally discontent with what God has given me, right? There is a, there is a discontentment and a questioning of the goodness of God. God, you're not, you're, you're not good enough to me because you have not given me what you gave to him. And further, you are not wise in giving it to him because you should have given it to me. And so therefore, I will in my heart covet what they have and seek opportunity to take it, which the Eighth Command had something to say about that as well. So you see how this really is, this is about God and my heart and my understanding of a sovereign God and whether he's good and what he has given to me. And whether or not I am counting my blessings, naming them one by one. Or am I counting their blessings and coveting them one by one? And that is a, is a, good, uh, that's a good word right there. So coveting, you know what it really is about? It's about comparing. It's about comparing. Looking at other people and what they have, what they've accomplished, their reputation, their whatever... And looking at what God has given to me and allowed me to accomplish and my, my status in life and questioning the wisdom and the goodness of God in what he has given me. And how easy it is, isn't it, to minimize what God has given to us and in our eyes to maximize what God has given to others and to think God's not been fair. Are you there right now? Maybe even as I talk about this, there's somebody or something that they have or have done that is coming to your mind. Covetousness. We find it all over in the Bible. Right away in the story, of course, you have siblings. Uh, Cain's uh, sacrifice was not accepted. Abel's sacrifice was accepted. And Cabal resents Abel and covets that accepted sacrifice. And what's his solution? He takes his life. Joseph is given the coat of many colors by Jacob. His other brothers are so happy that Jacob has bestowed a special honor on Joseph. They stand back and they clap and they have little little uh, pictures of the coat in their bedroom. They're so happy for Joseph. Yes, I love the fact that he's dad's favorite. Is that how it works in your family? (laughs) 
Maybe in your family, like most families, it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's down to the mint and the, 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 the dill seeds, right? Oh, mom and dad, I think they're liking him more than me. Any coats of many colors in your family always creates problems, right? Always creates problems. Rivalry, comparison, selfishness. Again, we, I, don't, I don't covet Warren Buffett's $60 billion, and I'll bet that maybe you don't either. But our brother's nicer house or our sister's nicer body? Oh, well, no, that's a little bit of a different story, isn't it? <laughs> Who do they think they are living in a place like that? Getting all high and mighty. I know him. I shared a bedroom with him growing up. Now look at the big cheese. Who does she think she is? Flaunting that body. That's the best body money can buy. Why does she have that and I don't? How easy it is to covet our family members spouse or house or donkey. Is it really about that fourth bedroom on the house or the two size smaller dress that she wears? Is that, is it really, is the issue the house and the dress? What does the Bible say is the real issue when I am experiencing that kind of emotion? And Jesus answers that question in Mark 7 and he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Listen to the list. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And that's why the 10th command, I I mean, I could name it the command for those who haven't been listening. Because I think you could be, you could go through this whole series. And if you thought about all these things very superficially, you could say to yourself, you know, I'm looking pretty good. I'm not bowing down to any man-made idols that I'm aware of. And I'm a pretty nice guy to my mom and dad. I've never murdered anybody, never robbed a bank. Haven't taken the Lord's name in, uh, in profanity since college. I don't lie as a general rule. I think I'm doing really well because I've got these outward lines that I can draw that I think make me look better than most people that I know. And then you get to the 10th command and there's no exterior line. There is no legalistic line. There is no sort of comparing my outward righteousness to others in terms ethically as the 10 commands lay out. The 10th command is about the heart. It is about the internal. And on that level, God says, do not think something you don't have in this world other than me will make you happy. And do not look at what your friend or neighbor or coworker has and think to yourself, if I had her, if I had that, if I had that name or reputation, then my life would be happy because we are not made to have ultimate happiness in anything in this world. 
And God loves us enough in the 10th command to draw our attention to our hearts and to force us to ask ourselves, who do I really think is the great I am? Hallelujah. And we get to the 10th command. The other nine, if they, if they haven't done it, the 10th command crushes us and points us to how much we need a Savior. Anybody want to look at the 10th command and stand up and say, I'm righteous. I'm righteous. I don't think so. This command knocks us down. Francis Schaeffer said the same thing. Thou shalt not covet is the internal commandment which shows the man who thinks himself to be moral that he really needs a savior. The average such moral man who has lived comparing himself to other men and comparing himself to a rather easy list of rules can feel like Paul that he is getting along all right. But suddenly when is confronted with the inward command not to covet, he is brought to his Knees, And I wonder if right now you are listening at any level to what this command says and what I am trying to say. And you can know if you do, if right now you are inside on your knees. Sinner. That's what the 10th command says about all of us. Because if we were true to our hearts, we violate the 10th command all the time. And here we see how the Ten Commands, they come full circle. What's the first command? You shall have no other gods before me, right? And we get to the Tenth Command, and he basically says the same thing. Only it's directed towards the idols of our hearts. The things that we think other than God will somehow satisfy us and make us happy. The Bible calls coveting idolatry. Paul, Ephesians 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, and notice the parentheses, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now he lists these sins and he includes the 10th command in there with commentary. Just in case you didn't know what covetousness really is, it is idolatry. Now, how is coveting idolatry? It is idolatry because a covetous heart is believing that something other than God will satisfy my heart. And that is the genesis of all of those resenting and irritating, annoying emotions that we feel towards people who have the thing or the life or the experience that we think if we had, that we would be happy. In fact, I think this is one way that we can easily find out the real idols of our hearts. What do you envy in other people? Our envies lead us to our idols. So, for example, we may envy people's physical looks or shape because of an idol of appearance or acceptance. We may envy people's money because of our idol of success or materialism. We may envy people's marriages or families because of an idol of perfection or reputation. We may envy people's status symbols, and in our culture there's so many of these, because of our idol of self-status and perceived happiness derived from them. You know another great way to know the idols of our hearts? What do you seek to control? Are you a control freak? 
We all sort of are, are we not? We all are around our idols. As I was preparing this message, actually, and here's how it goes when you're a pastor. You get instant conviction uh, about things. I'm, I'm, I'm preparing this message, and in the midst of it, uh, Friday morning, and I called my bank because I had not received a bank statement for a while and hadn't been able to balance my accounts. And so I, I called the bank and I said, hey, I've not gotten a monthly statement in a while. What's, the, you know, what's going on? And they said, oh, you received notice that from now on to get a monthly statement in the mail will cost you $4 a month. Well, being the godly individual that I am, that didn't bother me whatsoever. Actually, I gave them a, a small piece of my mind because it's all that I could afford. And I let them know my displeasure at a charge of $4 a month, almost $50 a year to receive an envelope paper and a stamp. And I said, pass that up the chain of command. They'll want to hear what I have to say about this, I'm sure. I actually was a little miffed by that. I don't know if you've ever had moments like that. Where it's, but I, why? Why was I miffed at that? I'll tell you why. Because it's the big bank sticking it to the little guy. That's what bothered me. Actually, that's not what bothered me. I could care less if the big bank sticks it to the little guy. As long as I'm not the little guy that's being stuck. Right? Four dollars. Now, what do those emotions reveal and my desire to control reveal about perhaps an idol in my heart? You see, I can trace my covets, my desires, my envies to the idols of my heart. And so can you. Maybe you want to think about that. When do you get controlling? When do you get emotionally engaged in something? I'll bet it's around one of the idols or potential idols of your heart. And this is why I think money in particular is so precarious for us. Because money is it's like a portal to all kinds of other things that we think will make us happy. If I have enough money, I can buy so many things that the world tries to convince us will in the end make us happy. If I have enough money, I can buy the perfect home. If I have enough money, I can buy the luxury car. If I have enough money, I can buy status. If I have enough money, I can, I can buy status symbols. With money, I can buy every idol that I covet in this world. At least we think so. And then what happens in our culture? The, the Buffett billionaires and multimillionaires die or commit suicide or do some other crazy thing. And for just a fleeting moment, our culture stops and thinks to itself, maybe money doesn't make you happy. Right? And that is what Jesus said over and over and over again. Famously here, I think so helpful to me, at least in my perspective on these things, Luke 12 verse 15. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness notice the word all covetousness 
For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What is Jesus saying there? And why should we like rent a billboard or something and put it up by the mall and the car dealerships? What is he saying? He is trying to help us realize that the things that really matter in life, those qualities that truly in our heart of hearts, down in our souls, bring meaning and significance, have nothing to do with material possessions. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Therefore, look out for all kinds of coveting. And I would bet right here, right now, all of us to one degree or another, but some of us in particular, realize that our lives are being lived in direct violation of Jesus' warning. We are living and orienting our life around this world and these days, and we're thinking, man, this is where it's all at. And Jesus is saying, it's not where it's all at. The things that really matter that your soul is wired for are not related to things that you can buy. Amen? Not bad over in Sierra Leone, there'd be a lot of amens on that. But an American materialistic consumer Christianity, that's a hard word because it's pounded home to us from the womb that we are worth what we are worth financially. How much is Warren Buffett worth in the eyes of God? It's something different than $60 billion. Actually, right after this passage, Jesus tells a parable, which I'll just summarize. Maybe you know the parable. It's the story of the man who had the huge bumper crop, and he just thought to himself, what am I going to do? I've got more crop, more resources than I even know what to do with. I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger barns. I'm going to sit back. I'm going to take life easy, eat, drink, be merry. And Jesus says... That that man died that night and God says, now what comes of all of your barns and all of your things? You fool. God calls the man a fool. And I wonder if God could speak into this room right now. How many of us are living our lives foolishly? What was the man's problem? Was it that he had big barns? Was it that he had a lot of resources? No, the problem was he had them without reference to God or eternity. He was oriented around his own little kingdom and his own little self. And there was no sense of life after death and what really matters for all eternity. My dear friends, money cannot provide the happiness that all of our hearts long for. If we really thought that God did that, wouldn't that be a great way to avoid coveting what other people have? I mean, if you really thought the person who has the this or the that, it didn't really make them happy and it wasn't the thing that ultimately mattered in life anyway, would, you, would it help maybe to not walk, drive by their house or their car or something and be like, ah, oh, 
I don't know if I made sense with that comment. Can I say that again? Are you tracking with me? If we, if we really believe that life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions, you can go to Warren Buffett's house and not think to yourself, Oh, if only I had this, then it would be awesome. No. The things that matter are not those things. Which is great news, because I don't know one Warren Buffett in this room right now. In fact, if we could just see that what matters in life and happiness is unprovided by things, then not only would we not resent siblings or friends who have things or have a windfall, we actually could rejoice with them. So all of this class envy and all of this sort of stuff, it's all carnal, right? It's all carnal. We ought to be happy for people when things happen in their life and not resent it. Don't you think? And if I resent it, is that saying something more about them or my own heart? Pastor Steve, now you're stepping on our toes and I hope this sermon's wrapping up. It's not. (laughs) Because I want to talk on the positive here. Remember, all the commands... There is every negative command. There is a corresponding positive thing that we are, we are to do. And God is giving that positive as a path to freedom. And so we can look at the 10th command. It says, do not covet. Okay, don't covet. But what is the positive that I, that I am to do? And this has to do with the whole matter of contentment. In fact, I think you could look, if you want to look at this on a spectrum, you could look at it. On one side, there is coveting. And on the other side, there is contentment. Okay, on the one side is discontentment, and on the other side is contentment. Okay, so there is a, a spectrum there. And what the command is saying is don't, don't go the coveting side. Pursue the, the contentment side. What does no coveting tell us about God? It tells us that God alone satisfies the longings of our heart. I don't have to know you personally to know that God has made you for himself, that there is not one car in the parking lot. I don't care how nice it is and whatever you drive home in. And frankly, I don't care what car you drive home in. I can just know this about the car. It won't make you ultimately happy. And I don't care what house you pull it into when you're done with this service. It could be a sprawling mansion or a shack. I don't care. But here's what I can know. It won't make you happy. Because we are not made for things. We are made for God. And we see how the 10th command is God's grace to us, calling us away from the things that won't make us happy towards the one thing that will, which is God himself. Do you believe that? Another way of saying it is this, the 10th command is the command to covet God. If you're like, I've got to covet. That's just the way that I am. Fine. Covet God. Desire Him and God alone. 
Now, does that mean it's wrong for us to seek to improve our lot, you know, to go from the apartment to the starter home, to go from the, the smart car to the Kia? Not to offend anybody that drives a Kia, because they're improving their quality, actually. Up with Korean cars. Is it wrong to seek to improve our lot in life? To be wise with investing and to start businesses and to do... No, it's not wrong to do that. Human flourishing, God is for it. In fact, 1 Timothy 4, 4, for everything God created by God, created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So as we've talked many times, you know, eat your filet mignon to the glory of God and receive it with thanksgiving. But the 10th command is about freeing us from a materialistic mindset about life that puts dollar figures on everything. It is freeing us from identity in things. Look at me. Look what I'm driving. Look where I live. Look who I am in my position. Freeing us from thinking that he who dies with the most toys wins. Freeing us from a lustful accumulation of the things of this world. Freeing us from the kind of misdirected and pathological life pictured wonderfully but tragically in Gollum. And his ring is precious. I just think if there's a command that American Christianity needs to hear, it's the 10th command. Now, the first command takes care of the 10th command, but the 10th command clarifies the first command. There is nothing in this world that will satisfy my heart. Do you believe that? Can I just ask you, do you honestly in your heart believe that? Is he the great I am? Or is he just good I am? Okay I am, but not as great as this thing that I'm really trying to sort of like get in my garage. You say, well, what can satisfy? What does provide my soul with the peace and contentment that I truly crave? And enter into the human heart, the person and the work of Jesus. You say, how can I know God? We know God through his son, the incarnate Jesus, who took on flesh lived in this world in time and space, gave his life as a ransom for many, resurrected on the third day at the right hand of God, coming again in power and establish a kingdom that will never end. This Jesus is God in flesh. To know him is to know God, the one thing, the one person that will satisfy the longings of my heart. And this is the the key, out of coveting and to contentment, is not to magnify my sense of the value of the things of this world, but rather to see them in their proper place when compared to The value and the greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. This is Paul's point in Philippians, where he talks about contentment. He says this in Philippians 4, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret. Do you see that? It's a secret. The secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Now, people quote verse 13 and they apply it to anything and everything, but it's talking about contentment. Through Christ, I can attain the kind of contentment. And Paul says here, hey man, I've been rich, I've been poor, I've had a lot, I've had nothing. And in all of those different conditions, I have learned a secret to being content. And I want to share that secret with you here. And it has to do with how I look at my circumstances. If my circumstances are my God, or they have to be a certain way for me to be happy, we will never be happy. Why? Because our circumstances are always changing. And even when I have the circumstances I want, they are always in a precarious position. The stock market crashes. The housing market crashes. My job is lost. And suddenly my fortunes are as well. How can I be content? And I read years ago, Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a classic book, the, the, the Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And it just planted these truths in my heart. I want to share them with you. Where does Christian contentment come from? And here's the key one right here. Contentment does not come by changing my circumstances to meet my desires, but changing my desires to meet my circumstances. Can I say that again? Because that was like, that was the rare jewel of the book named Rare Jewel. (laughs) Contentment does not come by me changing my circumstances. Contentment comes to, to meet my desires. Contentment comes by me changing my desires to meet my circumstances. And this is something the Christian can do. The carnal man can't do it, but the Christian can do it. Now, why is that so important? Because... Again, if, if, if my desires are for Buffett money, and I'm not going to be happy until I got Buffett level money, I am always going to be unhappy, right? And I'm all the time going to be trying to improve everything and try to make more money. I'll never be content. I'll never be happy. But as a Christian now, what do I have? I've got real treasure. Why? Because I have Christ. And that's Paul's point earlier in the letter. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He gives his whole resume and he says, I count all of that rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, he says. And we see that in Paul's estimation, knowing Christ was the greatest thing that a human being could, could have. The greatest possession that we can have is to have Christ by faith. And when I, as a Christian, look at Jesus and say, the great I am, hallelujah. When he is elevated in my value set, now I look at my circumstances, which are all the time changing materially and career and all of that health and all all the time changing. If I'm living for those things, I'm never going to be happy. But if I am living for Christ and my joy is in him, now these things can be changing, right? And I can conform my desires, my contentments, to my circumstances because I've got Christ as my great treasure. And oh, by the way, as a Christian, I believe God is sovereign over my circumstances anyway. 
And if I believe that he is a good God, then I can be okay with the things that he has given to me. So, my dear friend, the body that you have, the money that you have, the, 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 the position of life that you are in, the health that you have, the marriage that you have, the spouse that you have, the donkey that you have, is a fine donkey. And a good God gave you that donkey. And you can be thankful for it. But you don't have to live for having a better donkey. Why? Because I have Christ. I have Christ. Which is the next point I was making. My circumstances are controlled by a sovereign God who loves me. Do you believe that? You say, well, the good ones, yes. The bad ones, not so much. I don't think so. No, wait a second. God is sovereign over all things. And he brings to us the seasons of plenty and the seasons of less. In every circumstance, whether desirable or not, Christ is the source of my strength and my satisfaction. That's what Philippians 4.13 means. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can be content in all circumstances through knowledge that Christ is mine. And through that knowledge, I derive strength in the circumstances that I deem bad. And finally, I battle coveting what I don't have or what others do have by treasuring above all else what I have in Christ. How key that is. In fact, I like all of us, let's all fast forward to like the last days of our life. You ever do this in your mind? Just think, what's it going to be like when I die? And I don't know, I mean, let's assume we're all going to just get old and things break down and you kind of know the end is coming. What's that going to be like for you? No more degrees to graduate and to, and to get. No new houses to buy. No cool new car uh, to sort of brag with your friends. Long ago, you got over Super Bowl XYZ. Sports aren't that interesting at that point. You've attained all the money that you're ever going to make. And you're about to die. What will that be like for you? How can the Christian die happy? We die happy because in life, when we have treasured Christ in life, death, Philippians 1, is gain to us. Because when Christ is my treasure on earth, Christ is my gain in heaven. And we see that in the end, all these things we spend so much time pining for and longing for and living for, we don't, we don't take it with us anyway, right? In the end, what is its real value? In the end, Christ is the great value. And my dear friends, Again, these things in this world, they're not in and of themselves evil. If you've got a cool car and you want to give me a ride after the service, I'm all about it. Okay? I can rejoice with those who rejoice. And we can enjoy the things that God gives to one another as we are hospitable and share and all the rest. So we can do that. But we make these things evil when we mistakenly place our hope and happiness in them. So better to covet God, better to covet Christ, better to covet the godly lives of godly saints who've gone before us, better to covet the prayer life 
of a godly man or woman that we know. Better to covet the godly marriage of a couple that maybe God has blessed us in knowing. Better to, better to covet the, the uh, faithful covenantal love of a parent to a child that we observe. Better to covet God qualities in others. Better to covet God himself. And in doing this, we fulfill the 10th command and experience the freedom. That's the point. God, this isn't an onerous command. This is a command God's trying to set us free and to find our longings fulfilled in Christ, who is the great I am. And that's the 10th command. Now we've got one more to go, and that is the great command. And we'll take a look at that next week. Would you pray with me? And let's stand together to do so.